You're listening to The Right Process, a podcast in which one writer tells the story of completing one work from concept to completion. I'm your host, Charlie Jensen. The Right Process is brought to you by the Writer's Program at UCLA Extension, helping you reach your writing goals one page at a time. Enroll now at uclaextension.edu. Hi, I'm Michael Werwey. I wrote the movie Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile. Michael Werwey is the writer and executive producer of Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile, starring Zac Efron, Lily Collins, and John Malkovich. His original screenplay won the Academy Nickel Fellowship and was voted onto the blacklist. His next movie, Lost Girls, based on the New York Times bestseller, stars Amy Ryan, Thomasin McKenzie, and Gabriel Byrne. Both movies premiered at the Sundance Film Festival and are available on Netflix. He is currently developing an original series for television and has written projects for Warner Brothers, Legendary, Fox, and Amazon. Michael is from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and is a graduate of USC. Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile is a chronicle of the crimes of Ted Bundy from the perspective of Liz, his longtime girlfriend, who refused to believe the truth about him for years. I never intended to write a movie about Ted Bundy, believe it or not. I was working as a bartender at the time. I was writing spec scripts. I had been doing this for about eight or nine years. And I was writing my next spec, which I thought was some big commercial idea that would do wonderful things for my career professionally. I was trying to strategically write a genre story to get into the business. It was a big action thriller thing that I just didn't care about. I didn't feel the passion for it. And so I was procrastinating. I set the project aside, and I decided to pick up a book that happened to be about Ted Bundy. I've always been a big true crime fan, but I never knew anything about him or his story. His story has been told several times and and quite well. Much like the movie Reservoir Dogs is a heist movie with no heist in it, I wanted to do a serial killer story with no serial killing in it. I thought it'd be an interesting love story, and I saw kind of a Romeo and Juliet structure where it was the two lovers kept apart by the legal system, and that was kind of the genesis of everything. At that point, I just read everything that I could find that was written by a primary source. I read things that were written by a friend of his, by his, his longtime girlfriend, probably over three or four months. Everything that I could get my hands on, trial transcripts. I listened to podcasts and watched documentaries and just inundated myself with research. And uh, I just found myself drawn to the uh, kind of odd domestic details that wouldn't have been in any of the other tellings of that story. My writing process is I'm a fan of discipline and consistency. So I like to I like to write in the mornings. I like to get up early, make coffee, take a shower, and, and I'll write. And if I can get a good couple hours in, I mean, I think three hours is a great sweet spot where I feel like I've made an honest effort. Again, I wrote this when I was still bartending, so I had other obligations. And sometimes I only work 20 minutes, and I can't be too hard on myself when I'm, <laughs> when I'm doing that. As long as I show up day to day and do the work, I just trust that the process is going to lead me somewhere in the end. I think it's it's as important to take time away from writing and to absolve yourself of the guilt of not putting in that full day or not <laughs> if it's not working for you it's okay and it and and to try not to beat yourself up about it and this is much easier said than done and it's something that I still struggle with you know daily and a lot of those days there's not literal writing happening a lot of it's thinking a lot of it is outlining I hate the outlining process but I think it's essential This one was a little easier outlining process, again, because there is a chronology of events. I guess it was very similar to how I do other other stories, whether they're based on true events or not, and I've written both. I need to sit with the material for a long time. I need, if I need to do research, I'll, I'll do as much as I can, but there comes a point where research is really just a code word for procrastination. 
And so I'll set that aside at a certain point, and I'll just start making sense of the story dramatically based on all the tools that I've developed over the years. And I've been doing this a very long time. I think this was the 13th feature that I finished. And all those 13 features I do between two and 20 drafts of them. So there's been a lot, a lot of writing along the years and a lot of false starts for the, the 13 scripts I finished. There's maybe another 20 that I got to 40, 50 pages in and just abandoned. Moving from research to writing felt like a natural step in the process because the events are the events and I knew how I was going to tell the story. I always knew I wanted to start the movie after all of the crimes had been committed, all of the primary crimes. And I knew the tone. I think the events of history kind of gave me a rough structure in my mind. And that obviously was kind of fluid as I went from draft to draft to draft. So that made it easy for me to kind of fill in the gaps. I knew the major turning points. And so it was more character work as to how to develop these people and how to get them emotionally to the plot events that I needed to happen. I was keeping track in a Word document of interesting facts and tidbits. I was kind of assembling a chronology of events. So I built this long, long chronology of things that were just interesting to me as just a, as just a reader. I started to structure those events and make sense of them. And a lot of those I had to lose for obvious pacing reasons and just length. But I just had that document. And within all of those notes that I had, I also sourced the book and the page number, which I got it from, which proved helpful much later on in the process. But it allowed me then to reference those things as I was writing. The big dramatic moments emerged naturally in this project anyways. And so the challenge for me was to start to shape that into a more traditional story structure. If you want to call it three-act structure or a sequence structure, I did all of that stuff. And it was just kind of, it was very malleable. And I would try certain things. And if they didn't work, I would take them out. There were some happy accidents. A big surprise, unintended surprise of the script once it started to go around was, oh my God, this is about Ted Bundy because I didn't use his name in the initial spec draft. And that was never intended to be like a big Kaiser Soze reveal. It just kind of was, I lucked into it. You know, I wrote this script in 2010, 2011. So this was way before anybody knew. It was before Ted Bundy was back in the popular lexicon, before anybody was once again curious in the stories. It was just a story about a guy named Ted. And the tone was kind of a catch me if you can. The experience of readers feeding back to me, their surprise to get to the end, started to then help me reverse engineer a lot of that stuff going forward. Obviously, once a script got known around town, it was advertised as the Ted Bundy Project. And so that was no longer the big twist. But luckily, because the story wasn't constructed to be dependent upon that surprise, it didn't really take away from the dramatic effect of the story. It, it was, again, a love story. And it was, it was about these two people. So I always fell back on that structure. I constructed the movie intentionally to be watched the first time as a love story or a saga or whatever your knowledge of the backstory, even if you have none. And a lot of people are of the age that they don't really know. And then if you were to watch it a second or a third time, it should play like a horror movie. It should play like a slow motion train crash in that you know what's coming. And there's a point in the movie where even in the first viewing, things take a turn and you start to separate from the identification with the charm of Ted and you start to feel the revulsion of Liz. And you also are in the point of view of the public and the subsequent woman, Carol Ann Boone, who was seduced by this man a second time. And it is meant to have like a feeling of disgust. It's not a pleasant feeling by the end. And I think that uh, it takes some getting used to how to watch it. It's a challenging movie, but it was intentional that way. I frequently get the question about how do you live in this kind of dark world for so long. And because I wasn't writing about the crimes themselves, because I knew that was going to be in the back of the audience's mind coming into it, I didn't have to spend a lot of time personally thinking about that. I was aware of it, of course, and I did all of that research on my own end. But when I was writing the story, it was more of a story about manipulation and deception. So it became kind of a con man story. 
And in that sense, it was a it was a more fun tone in that it was a it was just a guy who who was able to lie and deceive and betray and seduce. And and I think those are always attractive characters. And this just happened to be a much more heightened version of that story. This was one of the quicker drafts that I wrote. I think the first draft may have taken me several months after the um, research phase was done. And I did maybe two or three other drafts. And then I just I got some feedback, as I usually do, from, from some friends and trusted readers. My process with getting feedback when I'm in the early phases of a script, I, I don't show my rough draft or my first draft until I feel like I've taken it as far down the field as I can. You know, any writer knows that when you have early work and you know it's bad, but you don't know how to fix it, it's an extremely vulnerable place to be in to send it out into the world. So I do have a group of people that I, I rotate drafts with. So nobody's reading all my drafts. Usually it takes me about five drafts, what I call five drafts, to get something that I feel is presentable to somebody else. These are friends of mine from college. These are people that I met when I took UCLA extension courses. I, I formed a writer's group with some people that I met from several of the classes that I, that I took there. And we met you know, religiously for every week for years. That was critical in my development as a writer. I don't need to be told that I'm an awesome writer at that point. I actually want constructive feedback. I want encouragement, but I want to be, I want somebody who understands story and I want someone who is going to help me. I think it's really important to have a community of other creative people to share your work with and get feedback, honest feedback. It can be really difficult if you don't have somebody that you're able to talk to that understands the process of creating something. It, it's, it's a very vulnerable place to be in. And a lot of the time it can be depressing. There can be a lot of anxiety. There can be just a lot of negative feelings. I think separation anxiety is a, is a real thing. I, I always go through like a mini depression when I finish something because you know how much work goes into creating anything. And then to have to start over at the bottom of the mountain on something brand new, especially if it involves deep research or learning a new way of storytelling, it's daunting. And if if you don't go back and focus on just what immediately you have to do today, it can be very overwhelming. And I've been there myself many times and I'll be there again. You get paralyzed. Sometimes you have to get paralyzed and sometimes you have to take a few days or a week or whatever and decompress, take a vacation, go work out, get out in nature, whatever works for you. And talking to somebody or just spending time with someone who goes through that, whether that's a writer or a painter or somebody in a completely tangential field, it's just important to have a support system to get away from the work sometimes and get away from the headspace and the the competition of, especially if you're in LA, just knowing that everybody's doing it and knowing that it's it's not taken seriously by a lot of people because there are so many people out here. It's easy to get discouraged and it's easy easy to feel like you're just one of a billion people. Do things that make you feel special again and make you feel excited to get back to work because, again, it's just the work that is always going to be present, whether you're trying to break in or whether you have 10 movies made. I've tried figuring out how to uh, take naps and get scripts written. It just doesn't work that way. You have to sit down and do it. I think the, the biggest evolution of that project in the early phase was that each draft, I pushed more and more into the perspective of the Liz character. The story now, in my mind, is as much her story as it is Ted's. I think in the early drafts, because Ted's story is the more dramatic story based on just the events and just kind of the wackiness of everything, and he's the more dynamic character, but the emotional journey, the person who has to, like, who has to arc and who has to come to a conclusion of sorts is Liz. And so um, that's a much more subtle kind of surgical approach in the rewriting phase. And so early drafts were more about finding structure and finding beginning, middle, and end with just the chronology of events. The subsequent drafts after that were how do you how do I shape the emotion? How do I strengthen the character relationships? And I think of almost all stories as some form of love stories, whether it's a literal love story or a metaphorical one. In this case, it was a literal one. 
But a love story has two people, has two parties. And so that meant developing Liz, understanding her in a greater context. And because she does disappear for a large part of the story, and I knew I was going to pivot to the Carol Ann character and to the general public's point of view, they then had to become a surrogate kind of for what Liz was going through emotionally. This is like a balance that took years to figure out effectively. Because I was writing about real people, I did feel a responsibility to preserve the emotional truth. When you're telling a dramatic story, there are going to be dramatic liberties that you take. And I'm of the mindset that if you're not going to tell the factual truth all the time, it must be emotionally true. It must be true to how people felt in the moment, and it must be true retroactively so that even if you're compressing time or you're consolidating or compositing characters, that it still rings true in the end. That said, even though I was writing about public domain people for the most part and one of the most famous trials in American history, I was writing about a lot of the domestic moments in that life, and there's not documentation about that. There is a little bit in the book that Liz wrote, and there's the book by Anne Rule that has a lot of interesting insight into the personal details of Ted and his dynamics with people. But I knew I was going to have a lot of scenes with no documentation. And so that's where it's important to understand who your characters are, what they want, all the basics of storytelling, whether you're telling a true story or a completely fictitious story, the methodology is the same. It's still going back to who are the characters, what's the conflict, what are the stakes, and how do you get in and out of the scenes. And it's trial and error. I mean, you don't always get it right the first time or the fifth time or the 20th time, and then you just keep polishing it until it feels right. I think at a certain point, I become a very intuitive writer where I just, I work and work and work and work. And it either feels right or it doesn't in the end. And I kind of know when it's off. I might not know exactly why it's off, but I'll just have to either go back to my toolbox or I'll go back to my readers or I'll go back to my producer or somebody that I trust in the process that can give me that objective point of view that I've since lost. That said, when you're writing about real people and you're crafting dialogue for moments that are not documented, there's always the risk of misinterpreting something. There's the risk of not getting it, but you just have to try your best. The majority of people involved have either since passed or were not willing to participate or weren't able to be found. So I didn't have a lot of direct help with that, unfortunately. I felt like I was able to identify enough with the emotional through lines. My, my personal identification combined with the imagination of being a writer and the skill set of being a writer, I had to trust was going to be enough to tell a compelling story. As to how authentic it feels in the end is, is kind of up to each audience member. You have to relinquish control at a certain point because you just do your best and you step behind the curtain. I kind of put the script aside for a little while until every year I would enter the Nickel Fellowship. It had been a dream of mine to always place or even win. This was the 29th entry over 10 years. Back in the, in the old days, you could enter up to five scripts a year. It's since been cut down to three, I believe. Over those 10 years and 10, 29 entries, I had made the quarters and semifinals several times with several different scripts. One year, I made the top 30. I had a, a handwritten note on one of my rejection letters telling me that. And, you know, I would re-enter those scripts year after year, and they would never replicate that performance. Like, the top 31 out of 6,000 never made the first cut ever again after that. The deadline was once again looming. This was in uh, 2012 now. I think I started researching in 2010. I entered the nickel in 2012. And it was, I think, I called it the fifth draft that I entered into the nickel. But I did a quick rewrite right before I entered it. I think I entered it the day of the deadline or maybe the, day, the night before. I was getting, you know, some encouraging feedback from people who had read the script before I submitted, but nothing that told me that it was going to be something special. And in fact, I was actually really depressed the whole time I was writing this script because I had been writing something much more commercial. I wanted to be like a big genre writer. And so I thought this little weird, quirky character drama love story about Ted Bundy was going to do nothing for my career. And so I, I just had no expectations for it and just forgot about it. 
This was the first year that I was entering Extremely Wicked. This was, um, it was my only new script. So I entered this one and a couple of the others that had performed well before. The others didn't advance at all. Extremely Wicked, you know, I got the notification and made the quarters. I, I felt good about that, but I still didn't put a lot of stock into it. I remember exactly uh, where I was. I was setting up the bar, getting ready for a shift, when I got an email on my phone announcing that I um, had made the semifinals with that script. And at that moment, I just felt, I had this hopeful feeling. I, I just kind of felt like it was going to, something was going to happen. <laughs> and I didn't want to put too much faith into that feeling because I'd been there before and there's so much disappointment when you have expectation. But I, you know, patiently put it in the back of my mind, waited another month or so, and I got the phone call that I was a finalist. I was in the top 10. Honestly, that was the moment that changed my life professionally. It was kind of, it was literally overnight where the town knew my name. They were calling and emailing. The script was being passed around and people were talking about it. I wanted really badly to win this competition, but there was still another section to go through. And that lasted another month, I believe. It was right around Halloween, if I'm not mistaken, that I got the news that I won. It was amazing. Everything was kind of in full swing as far as meetings. And I had been working with managers for a couple of years as in like a hip pocket arrangement at that point. That became a much more official relationship. I signed with my agents at the time and was just meeting everybody in town. It was, it was like a dream come true. I mean, you spend so many years toiling away in obscurity, desperate for attention, for somebody to recognize your talent. At the very least, it was a validation, which, which was awesome. It would still be another year before I made any money professionally as a writer. I still bartended for another year after all this, even though I was meeting studio heads and directors and celebrities of all sorts. And it was exciting, but it was very humbling too. And it, it was a magical time in my life. I, I still think about it fondly. It was a Cinderella story, but that really was kind of the spark that lit the fuse of what then became a career. And this was again in 2012. It was a long, exciting road. That was only the beginning of a lot of work. The process of getting that movie made was still another several years. From beginning the research project through writing, through making the movie and premiering was nine years. And, you know, there were times along the way where the script would come together in a way that felt real and like it was going to happen. This was several times we got a director and an actor, but no financing, or we had the financing, but no director. We, we always had one or two of the elements, but never all three at the same time. And I was just convinced at a certain point, after enough time had passed and it was no longer the bright, shiny object that was around town, Nobody cared anymore. And it was a difficult script to make. It was expensive. It was risky. It required bold vision with a, a bold filmmaker and an actor willing to take a chance. And too much time had passed. And I just kind of put it in the back of my mind and felt good that it did its function as being a calling card script. It's what got me work. I, I was working consistently for all those years. I was writing studio projects. I worked at Warner Brothers and Fox and Amazon and, and, and was paying the bills professionally. I was able to retire from bartending. But there were, you know, unfortunately, I just, I just, I accepted that that script was just going to be a calling card and nothing else. And then it just, out of the blue one day, I got a phone call that we had Zac Efron, Joe Berlinger, and financing. And six months later, we were on set. There's a lot of story in there that I'm skipping over. I'm giving you the Cliff Notes version. Uh, there were ups and downs for sure throughout. I was confident it was going to fall apart any minute that whole time. In fact, it's still kind of strange to me to trust that I have a real movie out there. But it was, uh, it was a long haul for this one. The draft we shot, it's called like draft 22 or something like that. I probably did hundreds, but um, there isn't a lot of cosmetic difference between all of those drafts. It, it's just fine tuning here and there because the tone was so, the tone of the script was a much more absurdist tone. The movie's a little darker. And so to maintain that balance of an absurdist tone, there couldn't be too much miscalibration in the rewrites. And there were drafts that went too far in one direction. We had experimented with previous directors telling more of a sobriety story with Liz. 
She had gone through rehabilitation programs that she had talked about publicly that were important to her. That was an attractive element to one director at one time. And those were all fine drafts. They were all different versions of the same story. The version that we settled on is product of just a lot of fine tuning, testing and retesting and going down some some wrong roads. And that can be frustrating when you look back on it. And especially in the moment when you know that you're doing something that doesn't feel organic or right to the process. But I, you know, I have to give a lot of credit to my producer, Michael Costigan, who came on once the nickel happened. He was one of the people that I met with that just really understood the story and understood the delicacy of the tone. I met him in 2012, and that's when we started the saga of trying to actually get this movie made. And his job, as he once put it to me, was to protect the script from me. Because there is a point along the way when you're working with material for long enough that you get sick of your own work or you forget what's working or you start to lose track of what the real magic was in the first place. And I certainly pushed it a little too dark in places or a little too light in other places or we lost the emotional continuity of certain character arcs. And he was always kind of the arbiter of what was working and what wasn't. And he was a great ally to have along the way and was never um, issuing mandates as far as what we need to do with the development, but was able to always keep his eye on the big picture and understand what we need to do to preserve what was special in the first place. I was on set uh, the first week and the last week. We shot for 30 days and it was exhilarating. I went there several times during pre-production and the lead up there while we were location scouting and tech scouting. Because it was such a compressed time um, from when we got our actor, director, and financing to shooting. It was again about six months. Uh, there wasn't a lot of time, fortunately, to tinker. There was some logistical rewriting as far as adapting scenes to locations. You know, a good example is there's a scene in the dog pound. Joe had scouted, Joe the director had scouted uh, this dog pound where we shot. He loved it. And we had originally had a scene at a zoo where Ted and Liz were looking at monkeys. And this was taken from a real event in her book. Joe loved the dog pound. Uh, it was a eerie, creepy, weird location. And we rewrote the scene to have the same dramatic function take place in that venue. I was there when we were shooting the Florida courtroom sequence with everybody. It's the, the, the Super Bowl of court cases, as it was described in the script. That was a, an exciting time for obvious reasons. We had Malkovich there and Jim Parsons and all these wonderful actors. It was the very last thing we shot. It was the final week of shooting. There was a lot of pressure to get everything. We had a lot to do there. We had three cameras going at one point. We were working very long days. We had a lot of extras. There were several rewrites then. A good example of that would be the closing arguments. In the script, they were they were pretty concise. We had gone through this long trial, which lasted 40 pages maybe, and the script was kind of wrapping that up and getting to the final climactic scene. Joe had this great idea that he wanted to intercut their closing arguments. And so to be able to have enough material to do that, I wrote basically a page monologue for Jim Parsons and for Zac Efron, and then Joe was going to intersplice the two of those. And I think it works beautifully. I love that part of the movie. You know, that was on the last day that we shot there. We were losing that location. I wrote a page monologue for each of them the night before. They got the pages that morning. It was a stressful but exciting situation. It's it's hard to memorize that dialogue, much less do it and recite it over and over again in front of a courtroom full of extras. We had all of the people seated there as like the, the courtroom gallery watching this performance. We had all the cameras running. The stakes were very high. <laughs> we, we had, I, I was watching the dailies every day through our 30-day shoot, and everything was just fantastic. I loved everything, and I knew that this this was it. If we stuck the landing, we got the movie because I knew we had everything, and that took some time, but but we did it. Uh, it, there, it was a very long process. It was stressful in the moment, but you know everybody was such pros. Zach was great. Jim is a TV actor. He's used to getting rewrites in the moments. You know, you give him a one-page monologue, and he is word perfect first time every time. 
it blows my mind uh, how, how they do this. Other than those two examples, there wasn't a lot of rewriting on set because there wasn't time. We had to move so fast. There wasn't a lot of time for deliberation or second guessing things. And I think that was good. I think that energy carried into the production. And we all knew this was a labor of love. This was not a big studio production. We, we did this independently. And everybody had to show up uh, because of their own passion. It was not a paycheck for anybody. We believed in the material and we wanted to do the best job possible given the restraints we have. And I think in those situations, a lot of times when you're writing a script or, or doing any kind of creative endeavor, it's the parameters which I think force your hand to be more creative. There might be a little resistance to it at first because you think you have to compromise your vision, but it really forces you to find more creative solutions to things because you don't have the resources of a large studio production. Working with a director is like working with anybody else in a creative capacity or probably any work environment in that everybody is unique. Fortunately, Joe and I had a really healthy relationship. We met uh, very early on in the process in Los Angeles. Joe lives in New York. I live in L.A. We met in L.A. right before we went to meet Zach and kind of have our initial conversations about are we doing this or not. And Joe at the time was releasing his documentary, Intent to Destroy. He had a lot of commitments and we were on such an accelerated time schedule that we did do some script development throughout that pre-production phase. But because it was so accelerated, there was only so much we could do. Um, Joe is a really, uh, he was a really valuable asset to have because his background is in true crime. He had a lot of experience working with death row inmates, falsely accused people. Extremely Wicked was kind of the inverse of what he had been doing with his documentary work. And it was, a, he seemed like the perfect choice as a director. We were just on the same page creatively. We had the same vision. He was a big fan that this was not a gratuitous hack and slash serial killer movie. We wanted to tell an adult drama. So we had a, a really respectful, uh, healthy working relationship, and I think we were both strong in areas that the other wasn't. It was a great collaboration. As far as the rewrites were concerned, Joe had a lot of really wonderful insights into kind of documenting the saga of Ted Bundy. My early drafts of the script didn't go so much into the details of the true crime backstory of Ted and Liz. And Joe really encouraged me to explore the expository backstory of this case. As writers, we're kind of taught that exposition's a dirty word. I've kind of come 180 degrees on that. I think the poor execution of exposition is bad. Exposition is often the exact thing that you want in the moment. And so there are some scenes in the movie, primarily with the Joanna character, which is played by uh, Angela Serafian, where she functions almost as like a mouthpiece for the exposition. And I mean that in a positive way. It, she delivers literal information that we, as an audience, need. And especially if you have no framework or context for Ted Bundy and what happened preceding the events of the movie, this is really important information to get. And that, that was a big note that Joe gave me early on. And that was something that we continually worked over throughout production was like, how are we giving enough information for people to have a context to understand the emotional story that we're telling? It's not to say that there weren't disagreements and debates along the way. There certainly were, but I think those are important in every creative endeavor. I, I think if you're not having some sort of debate about how best to execute a creative vision, you're not testing it strongly enough. Hopefully, in the end, the debate makes the work stronger as a result. And I believe it did. I'm happy with the way that it turned out. You know, the first milestone is, bit, is breaking in, and the next milestone is staying in. A lot of writers believe, and I certainly believe this, that kind of the holy grail of pursuing this career is having your big break. And that's certainly an important component of it. And it seems when you're listening to podcasts like this and you're reading interviews with writers and you're devouring kind of the media reporting of a writer who just launched their career, it can make it seem like it's an overnight success. 
And I can tell you, I've literally been writing my entire life. I started screenwriting when I was a young child, probably eight years old. I was making movies at home and, and handwriting scripts. And I got Sid Field's book when I was 11. I bought Final Draft when I was 11 by getting a, an educator's discount because my great aunt is a nun. I have it on three and a half inch floppy disk. I got like version three point whatever. But I never felt secure in having a career. I still don't feel that way. And I'm starting to believe, and I've been doing this professionally now for, I think, six years, maybe seven years, that there is no moment where you can sit back and relax. And that's kind of the biggest misconception. Once you get these, these big breaks, once you break in, you have to get hired. Once you get hired, you have to do a good job. And then you have to you do a good job, you have to get the next job and the next job. Then you want to get something made and you want to get something made well. There's always kind of another hurdle and that can be very overwhelming and discouraging if you think about it all like that. But if you just kind of set your sights on what's the next milestone that you have to get to, I have to finish this, this script. But I, I, if I don't finish it well, I'm, nobody's going to want to work with me again. So fortunately, my first professional job was received well enough that the studio wanted to work together again. And then that became my second job. And then that led to the third and that led to the fourth. And then as that was happening, as I was at the time feeling kind of like a journeyman writer, writing a lot of projects that were not getting made, Extremely Wicked came together. And ironically, Lost Girls came together at the same time. And then I had two movies shooting in the same year. I have no control over a lot of that stuff. A lot of it is luck and timing. But the luck and the timing only works if you have put in the preparation and put in the hard work and the discipline and consistency. I am convinced that just hard work over time will lead you somewhere. You don't know where it's going to be. You don't know what it's going to feel like. You have these fantasies of what it's going to feel like. I can tell you right now, it doesn't feel that way. <laughs> it's important to celebrate the successes when they come. They're few and far between. Take some time, feel good about them, but then get back to work. The more you can fall in love with the process of writing, because the process is hard and the process is not fun. But all in all, if you can look at the big picture and love that, I think that is the most I think that's the, the greatest weapon you can have as a writer is, is just showing up day to day. And even if you're not feeling it or enjoying it or your work didn't come out the way you want it to, do, to, to feel that way, that at the very least you're showing up. And by doing that day in and day out, it will lead you to a script or it will re lead you to the best work that you can do. The Right Process is hosted and curated by me, Charlie Jensen, and recorded at the UCLA Extension Studios. This season was produced by Jamie Moss. Audio support was provided by Andre Nikolaev. The Writers Program offers courses, certificates, and services that help writers achieve their writing goals one page at a time. For more information, visit writers.uclaextension.edu.